this morning, we are going to take a look at uh, what I feel to be two particularly unusual suspects. And um, we're looking at Philip and Thomas. Now, uh, if you were here for the kickoff of this series, we took a look at Peter. And uh, what I was talking about with Peter was that I felt like, you know, Peter, for me, wouldn't have been the leader that I would have chosen. I just didn't feel like the way he was wired and the stuff that he did, I, I just wouldn't, I didn't like him really as a leader. Um, but I could definitely see him as a disciple. I mean, can you see Peter as a disciple, hard-charging, passionate, you know, committed, ready to do whatever? I mean, the guy, you, you can't argue that, that he should have been one of the disciples, in my opinion. But um, for me, um, when I look at Philip and Thomas, I, I don't know if they would have made the cut for me. I mean, I don't know that they would have been in my 12 if I was the one choosing. And uh, that's not a critique of Jesus, God, no offense. But um, anyway, so, so as I was kind of looking at Philip and Thomas this past week, uh, there were two questions that, that I had going through my brain. And I want you to have those two questions on the forefront of your brain. And so as you were learning about Philip and Thomas, you can be thinking about these questions. Just, just keep these questions with you all through these next few minutes. The first question is this. Why did Jesus choose them? If you're following along, it's, uh, you got a couple fill-ins at the top of your outline. Why did Jesus choose Philip, and why did he choose Thomas? Not your typical choices, I don't think. And then what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Why is what Jesus did, why, is, why are Philip and Thomas and, and Jesus' choice of those two guys, how does that have any bearing on us today? I mean, how is that relevant or applicable to us today? That's what we're going to try and figure out. It's like, what does that mean for us? So we're going to start uh, by looking at Philip. We're going to be exclusively in the Gospel of John today. I always encourage you to get a hold. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles right on that table as you walk out. Get a hold of a Bible. Find yours at home. Dust, put, get the dust off of it and, uh, and bring it in. It's a good habit to get into. So we're going to start in John chapter 1. But before we do, uh, let's say a word of prayer if you would pray with me. Um, Lord God, uh, we are uh, just opening your word and uh, we're asking that you would speak to us this morning. So um, please do that in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So um, we are first introduced to Philip in John chapter 1 and in the gospel of John. John doesn't waste much time in his very first chapter. He's already talking about the, the calling of the first disciples. And Philip is among the first disciples who are chosen to follow Jesus. We pick it up in verse 43. It says, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Hey, Philip, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, Nathanael, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Did anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, Philip said. So here we have, this is, this is the first thing that we find out about Philip. And Philip is off to an absolutely blockbuster start. It doesn't get any better than this. He has an encounter with Jesus, okay? And Jesus says, come on, Philip, let's go. It's time to follow me. And Philip is totally on board. Okay? In fact, he says to his friend Nathaniel, he says, Nathaniel, this is, this is you know, we're, we the Jewish people, we've been waiting for this Messiah. We've been waiting for this Savior who is to come. And, and he's come. 
Jesus of Nazareth, he's here. Like, let's go. Come on. So Philip is like, from the very beginning, Philip looks like, oh, man, this guy's a perfect disciple. I mean, he is totally locked and loaded. And in fact, you could make an argument that maybe he was like the very first ever evangelist. You know, here he is bringing his buddy Nathaniel along. Come on, come and meet Jesus. Come, come check this guy out. So you can't do better than, uh, than Philip's beginning. But let's take a look at where we go from there. So the next time we see Philip is in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, uh, a lot has happened since John chapter 1. Now Jesus has his 12 disciples. They've been called. They're following Jesus. And Jesus, man, he has been doing his thing. So he has been turning water into wine, performing miracles. You know, he, he has been healing countless people of all kinds of diseases. And so as you can imagine, what's happening is that he is developing a tremendous following of people who just want to get near Jesus so they can hear him teach or that they might be able to get healed of whatever is ailing them. So there's these massive crowds that are following Jesus. So in John chapter 6, what's happening is Jesus and his disciples go to the Sea of Galilee. And they go up onto the side of the mountainside right there overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we read in John 6 that there's this like tremendous crowd that's following Jesus. And actually, the number of men alone numbers 5,000. So you factor in women and children, you can only imagine, probably at least 10,000 is, is my guess. So anyway, so this massive crowd is, is, is there. And, uh, and look what Jesus says in verse 5, John chapter 6. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Hey, Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Jesus asked this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, a little bit of information about Philip, okay? Kind of from what the little bits and pieces that we see in the scriptures about Philip, what most people kind of surmise that Philip probably was is he was probably like the administrator of the group. Okay? He was like the logistics guy, the organizer, the planner. Okay? So, um, you know, in fact, in, in John chapter 12, we, we read that there were some people that were coming and they were just wanting to have a meeting with Jesus. They went through Philip. Philip was like the point guy. He was kind of seemed like the organizer, administrator. Like they went through Philip to get to that meeting with Jesus. So, uh, and you know, um, Judas was the treasurer, right? I mean, Judas kept, kept the money. And so it seems from that that maybe there were other people um, who Jesus delegated different roles and responsibilities to. And, uh, and just kind of judging by Philip's personality, you'll, you'll get to read into it here in, in a second. Uh, he was probably that nuts and bolts, details kind of guy. And his response really tells us more about him in verse 7. Uh, so Philip says to Jesus, Jesus says, well, where are we going to get money? To, you know, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip answers him, Jesus Eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough bread for each person to have one bite. Now, um, this is the NIV translation, but if you have like the King James or New King James or maybe uh, some other translations, the the literal way that that this is translated, instead of eight months' wages, it's literally translated from the Greek into English, it's translated 200 denarii. Okay? So, and you might see that in the footnotes of your Bible. It says, Philip basically said, 200 denarii. Now, a denarius was a whole day's wage. Okay? So he's, Philip's saying, 200 days' wages. Okay? 200 denarii 
wouldn't be enough to buy bread for, for just to, for each person to have one bite. So here's what I, I kind of speculate that Philip's doing here, okay? Jesus asked him this question, and Philip is a details guy, okay? He's kind of a nerd, you know what I'm saying? Any nerds out there, okay? If, if he were living today, he'd have his Excel spreadsheet going, okay? And he's crunching, he's grinding out the numbers. He's looking around, and he's thinking, okay, we got about 10,000 people here. Let me calculate how much that would get for even to get one bite. And he's doing all the math, and he's, you know, regression analysis and all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, he is just, like, into it. This is, this is Philip's personality. He's a nuts-and-bolts tactical kind of guy, okay? So here's the deal. Jesus goes to Philip, okay, and he, and he asks Philip, what are we going to do? And it says that he asked him, this is really interesting to me, he asked Philip even though he knew what he was going to do. So is he like messing with Philip here? Is he kind of just not, I think in a way he is a little bit. I think he's messing with Philip here. See, here's the deal, okay. Jesus knows what he's about to do. And he recognizes that this is a major teachable moment, for all of his disciples, okay? He wants everyone to get this. In fact, we know this is so big that this is recorded in all four of the gospel writers' accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this, so you know that this had a big impact on them, okay? So Jesus is basically saying, okay, I want everyone to grasp what I am about to do. I want everyone fully engaged in this moment. And so you got to imagine, he turns to Philip, okay? And you gotta, you got to think, they're up on this beautiful hillside, you know, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, okay? He doesn't want Philip, you know, Philip could be like looking up at the sun, you know, kind of taking it easy, recline, look at all these people, it's like a big party, you know? I mean, he wants, he doesn't want Philip daydreaming or falling asleep, you know, he wants Philip right in the moment, right? Now, I know none of you guys here would ever even, never daydreamed ever at Grace Community Church, never even for a second. I mean, the sermons are so amazing, you know, that you're just fully lo- locked and loaded all the time. Uh, and certainly you've never daydreamed or, you know, fallen asleep in class, right? Like in school, you would have never done that. Um, I actually, uh, my freshman year of college, um, I went to uh, Miami University in Ohio, and, uh, and it was freshman year, you know, I'm, I'm brand new on the campus, and um, I got signed up for, for calculus at 8 o'clock in the morning. I know for some of you, 11 a.m. on a Sunday is early, okay? 8 a.m., five days a week. In a stinking calculus class, you know what I'm saying? This was, this was terrible stuff. And so I had been given some advice in my orientation, which I loved. The advice was, when you get to a class, and this was one of those like big lecture halls, stadium-style seating, you know, everyone's packed in like sardines. And uh, I was given advice, you know, when you go to a lecture like that, don't sit right in the back because there's so many distractions and it's hard to see and it's hard to hear. Sit right up at the front and you'll be like, you know, right there locked in, Right. And the other thing about sitting in the front that's great is if you happen to fall asleep, you know, the professor, stadium-style seating, goes up. So the professor's kind of looking, you know, midway, never sees the sleepers on the front row, never would suspect the good students in the front to be sleeping. So I'm like, okay, I'm dialed in. I'm right on the front row, first week calculus class. And I don't know if it had been a rough night the night before or what was going on, but, but I'm sitting there, and, and he's my professor is just droning on about calculus, and he's just killing me, you know? And, like, about halfway through, I'm just like, I'm not going to make it, you know? And, I, and the next thing I know, I'm asleep. And so I pick up the rest of the story, actually, from a friend of mine who told me what happened next. <laughs> so this professor was particularly evil, and uh, he had this thing, and he was brilliant at doing it, too, and I was like the guinea pig for it. He'd be, you know, he'd be lecturing, and he'd be writing all these formulas up on the board, you know, 
And, uh, and then he would catch someone who had fallen asleep. And in mid-sentence, so as not to disrupt the sleeper, he would just be like, so then X is this and blah, blah. And then he would go, and, and then he would just start talking about the person who was asleep and focus everyone's attention on them and describe what the person looked like so that everyone would be looking at the sleeper for when he would wake them up. So anyway, there's this, there's this ruggedly good-looking gentleman from, from England who had fallen asleep on the front row, this kid from Cincinnati. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I, I'm not off, and, and my friend tells me that then he, he starts talking just right from whatever he was doing. He starts saying, you know, not only is it totally rude and disrespectful to fall asleep in a professor's class in the first week of school, but to be right in the front row is so audacious. You know, how could you have the gall to do something like that? And he then begins to describe what I'm wearing and, and kind of like he starts to just talk, you know, making fun of me right then. Then he walks over, you know, and with the, with the whole class now watching, he walks right over to me and he just slaps his hand on, on my shoulder and goes, welcome back. And, you know, I wake up and, you know, my pen goes flying and everyone's, I mean, just dying laughing, you know, just dying laughing. But here's the thing, okay? Now no one's going to fall asleep for the rest of this, you know? I saw like three of you guys just totally wake up a second ago. Um, here's the thing. Do you guys think that for the rest of that hour lecture, I was, I was engaged? Oh, baby. I mean, I was totally locked in on every word that my professor was saying, right? He had my full attention because he, he involved me in the class in a major way, okay? So let's come back to Jesus. Okay, so here's Jesus, major teachable moment. He knows what he's going to do, and what does he do? He says, of all the disciples, there's one he's got his eyes on. That he says, this disciple needs to get this lesson more than anybody else, and it's Philip, the details guy, the number cruncher, right? And he says, okay, Philip, and he involves Philip, and he says, how are we going to do this, Philip? And he gets Philip engaged now. You see, he's engaged in the problem, right? He wants Philip fully just right there for what he is about to do next. And here's the thing about Philip. Philip is such like a, a logical, rational thinker that in his response, what we see is he can only see the reality of the situation. He can only see kind of the earthly reality, right? There's no way. There's too many people. There's not enough money. It cannot happen. Philip can't even fathom how all these people would, would get fed. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ is standing right next to him, who has done miracle after miracle, who has turned hundreds of gallons of water into wine, okay? Who has done impossible things. And he, he is so focused. Now, if you're like a detail person, if you're like a real rational thinker, okay, like me, if you're kind of a nerd like me, you can totally relate to Philip, okay? He can't, he's so focused on his earthly situation, he can't fathom any heavenly possibilities going on here. For me, this happens to me all the time, okay? I'll get into a situation in my life where all of a sudden I'm freaking out, I'm stressing out, you know, and I'm thinking, and I'm scheming and plotting, and I'm a, I'm a control freak. Any control freaks out there? Oh, yeah, okay. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of it, and I just don't know how this is all going to come together. I don't know how it's going to resolve itself. And, you know, all I can see as I'm so fully engrossed in my problem, my situation, I completely lose sight of God. And I completely forget, you know, how God answered a major prayer for me that year before or just, you know, did something really cool the month before or whatever. I, I completely forget that, that there are possibilities that God might be able to do something here. And I don't know if, if, if 
that is your situation, but that's kind of where Philip is. So, you know, basically, what, what Jesus, I think, is trying to say to Philip here is, look, don't forget about the possibilities. Don't forget, don't, d- d- you know, don't just be so focused on your situation that you can't leave a little room for me to do something amazing. All right, we're going to jump to John chapter 14. And um, in John chapter 14 now, uh, we are in the upper room. This is, this is um, the night that Jesus is arrested. And uh, Jesus is with his disciples. And he's, he's telling them, once again, what's going to happen. And he's saying, look, guys, I'm going to be arrested, and then I'm going to be crucified. But it's got to go down this way. This is part of God's plan for the redemption of the world. This is how uh, the forgiveness of sins is going to happen. And so this is just the way it's going to work. And so he's telling his disciples this, and of course, they're terribly distraught. I mean, they're freaking out here, okay? And so it says in John 14 that he reassures them. And he says, you know what, guys? It's okay. Don't worry. You'll be with me. Now, if you really stop and think about that, I don't know how reassuring that is. <laughs> he's saying he's going to get killed, and then we're going to be with him. But anyway, somehow that was reassuring for them at the time. So he says, you'll be with me. I'm preparing a place for you. Okay? And then Thomas jumps into the conversation, and Thomas goes, but Lord, we don't know the way. I mean, how are we going to get to you? We don't know the way. And so we pick it up in verse 6, John 14. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Now, I want you to catch this next sentence. He says to his disciples, he says, From now on, guys, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, So what he's saying right there is, look, you're wanting to, to, to have seen the Father. You're so interested in God and wanting to see God. Don't worry about it. From now on, guess what? You have seen him. I am God. That's what he's saying. Okay, He's saying, that, don't worry anymore. From now on, you've seen the Father because me and the Father, we're one. I'm God. Okay, Super cool stuff. Look at Philip's response. Um, Philip said, uh, Lord, um, could you just show us the Father and, and that would be enough for us. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so easy to play like the Monday morning quarterback, you know, like the, the um, you know, kind of critiquing after the fact. It's so easy for us to sit here and, and laugh at Philip. And, and I could say a million things. I'm just going to, we'll just keep going and read Jesus' response. Um, it says, Jesus answered Philip, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? You got to realize Philip's been walking with Jesus for three years. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, come on. Won't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now, as I read this, I am kind of in amazement that. Philip has such a hard time believing. He's walked with Jesus Christ, seen all these miracles, done all this amazing stuff for the last three years. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, 
in my, in my t- like darkest moments, in my times when I'm just like questioning everything, when my doubts are sky high, when my faith is super low, and I even am like, okay, God, are you really out there? Like, am I just talking to the ceiling? Or is this, is, you know, what am I doing? And I work for a church. I shouldn't be saying this stuff, right? You know, but, uh, you know, in those moments where I'm just like faith at an all-time low, I'm in a total valley, you know what I sometimes like kind of daydream a little bit about? I think, you know, why couldn't I have lived like 2,000 years ago? I, I, if I could have just seen Jesus, you know, I mean, all I have is like, I got the word and that's cool and everything, but like, if I could have heard him from his mouth say this stuff, then I would really know. You know, if I could have like, if I could have seen him heal one person, I've been, that's it, right? I mean, just one person. Or seen one miracle, like just awesome miracle. I'd be, I'd be locked and loaded, man. And, and I, sometimes I, I think about that. If only I was there. And then, you know what? I come back to Philip, and I think about this, and I'm like, you know, Philip was there. And it's not like he was skeptical from the beginning. In the beginning, he was like, oh, this is, this is him. This is the Messiah. So he was there. He walked with Jesus for three years, and here he is at the end of three years sitting with Jesus, and he's having a hard time grasping the fact that Jesus is God. I mean, that's... That's incredible to me. He was with Jesus, and he still, can't, he still can't get his mind wrapped around this thing. So it gives hope for me and for, for you guys. And then um, Jesus says something to Philip, which, which I... Here, here we go. This is, this is awesome. He goes, Philip, verse 11, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence... Of the miracles themselves. So basically what has been going on here is Jesus is engaging in this dialogue with, with Philip. And he says, Philip, you don't believe? Even after all this time, you don't believe? And then he says, Philip, just believe. Believe. And he says, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Now, um, I want to share with you guys a formula that uh, if you've been coming to Grace for a number of years, you've seen this before because I put this up one time before. But this is a formula that has helped me tremendously in my spiritual journey, uh, particularly when, when I have a hard time with believing things or my doubts are high. And the, the formula is B equals R plus F. I told you I'm a nerd, okay? So, so yeah, just bear with me, okay? B stands for belief, Okay. And this was shared with me a number of years ago by a, a brilliant uh, person who was kind of breaking this thing down. They said, you know, every belief that we have in life is made up of two components to get us to the point where we actually can believe it. Okay? The two components, the first one is reason. The R stands for reason. And reason, that's like logic. Okay? That's evidence. That's head stuff. That's basically saying it makes sense at some level, right? If something is so ridiculous, it doesn't even make sense, you're, you're going to throw it out. There's no chance you're going to believe it, okay? So the R is like it's rational. It, it makes sense, all right? So you've got to have an element of that. It's got to be somewhat reasonable, okay? But the other element that always goes in to believing something is there is an element of faith. There's an element of faith where you've, you've got as much reason or as evidence as you can, and then at some point you just have to say, you know what, on faith, I'm just going to go ahead and believe that this is true. Either because my mom told me, you know, and shared with me this thing, or, or you know, my, a teacher, or I read it in a textbook, or whatever it is that you're believing, at some point it makes sense, and there's an element of faith where you just say, okay, 
I believe it. And I think what Jesus is saying to Philip right here is he's saying, Philip, you don't believe even after all this time? This is crazy. Listen, Philip. And he just goes, believe. Now, what do you do with that? It's like, you don't believe, just believe. Well, I, I think that really what Jesus is after here is especially where he says, look, he says, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Okay? What is he saying? He's saying, Philip, you've got to believe. Listen, you've got enough evidence. You've got enough of the R. Okay? You've seen all this stuff. You have enough, Philip. Okay? It's not going to get any better than this, brother. Okay? You just need to believe. Okay? It's time for you just to take a step of faith and just to, just to go forward and just say, I'm going to accept this. I am going to believe it. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is after here is in order to believe something, you have to have faith. You have to have faith to believe it. At some point, you just have to do that. All right, we're going to come back to that again. Uh, but I want to talk about another disciple who really had this, a lot of the same struggles that Philip did. Another one who really struggled to believe, and that is Thomas. And we're a little bit more familiar with Thomas than Philip. In fact, if I had to have you guys shout out a word that best describes Thomas, what would your word be? Doubting, doubting Thomas, right? I mean, he is just, that's where that expression comes from, doubting Thomas. It's, it's right from the Bible. Thomas was a doubter. He was a skeptic. And, um, you know, by everything we see about him in the scriptures, he was pretty pessimistic. He might like to be called a really harsh realist, but, I mean, let's just keep it real and kind of, he was pretty pessimistic about a lot of things. But what's interesting to me is if you flip um, to John chapter 11, um, there is a great story that actually sheds some, some new light on Thomas that, that I had never seen before. And maybe this will be new for some of you. But in John chapter 11, what's happening is um, Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles for quite a while. And so he has totally um, just stirred up all the authorities, right? All the religious leaders of his time, they're furious with him, okay? Because he's saying they're doing it wrong and he's critiquing what's going on and he's healing on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders are furious and they're plotting to kill him. And they've, they've made some attempts on his life. And so now uh, Jesus has left Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. That's where like the hub of Jewish activity was. That's where the temple was, okay? He, so he and his disciples, they've now left Judea because it's just been so threatening, so violent. They've gone away, and they're like now in the outskirts of the region, okay? And they're do, he's still doing miracles and teaching and doing all kinds of awesome stuff. But he's not in Judea anymore. It's just too crazy. And he finds out that his great friend Lazarus is sick, and then he finds out that Lazarus has died. And so I'm just going to paraphrase what happens. But basically, he says to his disciples, there's this long exchange, just paraphrase. Basically, he says to his disciples, look, Lazarus is dead. And I am going to go, and I'm going to raise him from the dead. Going back to Judea, and I'm going to raise him from the dead. Well, of course, the disciples, they're no fools, okay? I mean, they do a lot of bonehead things, but they know what's going on in Judea. And they're like, oh. And they're all just, you can almost feel it in the room. They're, they're all thinking, oh, man, not Judea. We don't want to go back to that place. And Jesus says, come on, we're going, okay? What's interesting is that, you would expect, if you've been tracking in this series, you'd expect that the guy who would stand up, pull out a sword, and be like, let's go, guys, would be who? Peter, man. Peter, he should be like charging out the door. He's not the first one to chime in. Interesting. We see it in verse 16, John 11. It says, Then Thomas called Didymus, and a total side note for all of you ADD people, this is a great ADD moment, okay? So this has nothing to do with anything. Um, Thomas called Didymus. Didymus literally means twin. 
That's what, that's what it means, twin. So we don't know any, it doesn't say anything other than that was kind of the, what they called Thomas. They called him, that was kind of his nickname. They said, hey, twin. That was, that's what they called Thomas. We don't have mention of his twin. We don't know if it was a fraternal twin or identical twin. We don't know what his twin did. We have no clue. We just know he had a twin. So, okay, ADD moment's over. We're coming back, okay? So, so again, we're going to go. We're going to go back to Judea. That's what Jesus is saying. And Thomas stands up, and he goes, it says, he says to the rest of the disciples, guys, let us also go, that we may die with Jesus. Now, he ain't going to win any awards for a motivational speaker here. Okay, I mean, let's, let's, let's get one thing straight, okay? I mean, that's not the way that you motivate a whole crowd of people to go out and do something, okay? There is no doubt that Thomas has a little bit of pessimistic uh, quality to him, okay? But here's the cool thing about that statement, okay, that I read that. It's pretty darn courageous. It's pretty darn courageous. I mean, it's one thing. If you were to stand up like Peter, you know, I, I would imagine Peter would have stood up this way and been like, okay, guys, take out the sword, you know, and be like, come on, guys, you know, it's going to work out. We're going to get through this. Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to get us through. It's one thing to say, let's go with Jesus if you think you're going to make it through. It's a whole other thing when you actually think that this is probably it, that you're going to lose your life. You following me? And Thomas says, basically, he's like, hey, guys, guess what? We, we made a commitment to follow Jesus. This is, I'm just totally, you might not agree with the way I'm interpreting this, but this is just how I read this, okay? I kind of see Thomas doing this. We made a commitment. We sign up to follow him wherever he goes. And guess what? He's going to Judea, and we're going too. If that means we're going to die, that's okay. I love this guy, Jesus. I'm going to follow him to the death. Let's go. And I think that actually could have been pretty motivational for, uh, for those other disciples who were there, you know? And, and I wonder if maybe his devotion and his loyalty that he had to Jesus, his, his love for Jesus, somehow might have kind of factored in later on in the story. You see, and, and we love to give Thomas a really hard time. We beat up Thomas for what happens at the end of the story, right? We, if, if you've heard this story before, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appears to the disciples. Like, all the disciples are there, but Thomas isn't there, right? And that's why Thomas has to say, well, I'm not going to believe this because I wasn't there and I didn't see it. And, and that's how, you know, this whole thing happens. And I think a lot of times what we do is we then kind of say, well, you know what, Thomas? That was, that was his fault. You know, a good disciple would have stuck with his brothers right there. He would have been in that room, you know, and this is part of the problem with Thomas, you know. And I don't know if maybe you've heard people talking or speculating that way. But I wonder, I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if maybe the reason that Thomas wasn't in that room was because he loved Jesus so much. He was just completely devastated by the thought that Jesus was now gone. He was dead. And they're all mourning this. And maybe Thomas, you know, he's pessimistic. He's just kind of his own, his own person. And maybe he just said, I can't be around anybody. Maybe he was just kind of mourning and, and just grieving on his own. Maybe that's why he wasn't there. And maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that, like, he was slacking or hanging out, hanging out with his twin somewhere or whatever, you know. Um, I just wonder, maybe he was just devastated. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 20. Um, in verse 25, so Jesus um, had appeared to these other disciples, but not to Thomas. And so it says, the other disciples told Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see 
the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe it, guys. And a week goes by. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. Thomas then turns and says to Jesus what is actually the strongest profession of faith in the entire Gospel of John, interestingly enough. He says, my Lord and my God. Mm. You know, this story perfectly illustrates what I love about our God. I, I just think God is so cool. See, God knows exactly what Thomas needs to believe. He knows exactly what Thomas needs. Thomas doesn't have enough of this yet. He doesn't have enough evidence. And so he says, I know you so well, Thomas, that I'm going to come and I'm going to hand deliver you the evidence. Okay? That then you need to believe in me. What's interesting is he didn't do that with Philip. Right? What did he do with Philip? You remember? I just talked about it like five minutes ago. Seriously. <laughs> okay? Remember with Philip? Philip couldn't believe. He just couldn't believe. And, and Jesus goes, what do you say? Just believe. You've got enough. You just need to believe. You just got to have faith. I am God. Just believe. Okay? So with Philip, he's like, Philip, you got enough. With Thomas, he's like, Thomas, I know you. I know that you need a little bit more. That's what's awesome about our God. Because if you're here today and you don't know the awesome reality about God, let me tell you something. God is more than just this like impersonal, like higher force, higher being type thing that's going on. Our God is a personal God. That's the one overriding message from start to finish of this book. Our God is a personal God. And he has a personal, unique relationship with each one of us, whether we know it or whether we don't know it. And so here's the reality. God knows exactly what you need to believe. And that's what we see. With Philip, he says, buddy, you got enough. It's just time to go. You just got to believe. Just have faith and go. With Thomas, he says, I'm going to give you a little bit more. That is pretty cool stuff. And what he says next, I love too. Because for me, he's talking to Thomas, but he has, at the, at the end of this, this verse, he has something that I think is a great takeaway for us. It says, then Jesus told Thomas, he says, because you have seen me, you've believed. And this is the part for you and me, I think. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, here's the question. Why would those people who haven't seen and yet believe, why are they blessed? Why are they blessed? They haven't seen. Okay, They weren't there. They didn't get as much of the evidence. right? So they've believed with not as much evidence, not as much of the reason side of things, and I believe that the reason that they're blessed is because it takes a greater measure of faith. I believe that the reason that Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, is we're blessed because of our faith. Our faith is the blessing. You see, for me, here's, here's the reality. Our faith is what makes our relationship with God move. 
our faith is like the engine that drives this thing. Okay? Faith isn't this one-time, one-shot deal. You might be thinking, oh, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus, you know, 25 years ago or whatever. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking faith is an everyday, all-the-time kind of thing that we need in our relationship with God. Yes, it's important. There's a major step of faith that comes with actually saying, okay, I'm going to believe that Jesus is my personal Savior, and He's my Lord, and I'm going to follow Him. That's a huge deal. But then there's the faith in everyday stuff, right? It's faith in trusting God with our finances. Faith in trusting God that He's going to take care of us. Faith in trusting that God's going to God's going to bring us through a situation or God's going to deal with a relationship or God's going to give us the wisdom that we need. All of that ultimately, right, is constantly coming back and, and, and having faith in believing, yes, I'm going to believe these things that, that I've been told in the scriptures. These promises that God makes, it takes faith to believe that stuff. And so I believe there's many reasons why Jesus must have chosen Philip and Thomas. But the one that really hits me this morning is I believe that he, he chose Philip and Thomas. One of the reasons was to show us he wasn't going to choose all these faith superstars. Okay, He's saying, look, I'm going to choose two guys with weak faith. I'm going to choose two guys who, you know, th- they don't have it all figured out. And in fact, Philip's going Philip's to come kind of unglued right at the end, and, and he still can't figure out who I am. And then Thomas is there doubting me. He's like, I'm going to choose these two guys of weak faith to, to make a point. And the point is that he's basically, the way I read it, is that God is saying, look, if I singled these guys out and chose them, and I can work in them and through them for amazing things, okay, to do amazing things for the kingdom of God, then basically what God is saying is, like, I can, I can work in every single one of your lives. So whatever amount of faith that you have, God can take it, and God can use it. And the other takeaway that I get from this is that no matter whether you're here this morning and you've just got like the tiniest speck of faith, like it's so small you can't even hardly feel that you have any faith at all, or whether you have a tremendous amount of faith, I believe that what God is saying to us through Philip and Thomas is that no matter how much faith you have, God wants to take it and grow it. God wants to give you more faith. Faith is the engine that drives your relationship with God. See, Philip and Thomas, they needed to have like a huge faith boost before they could go out, right? They eventually went out and they were two of the greatest evangelists ever. I mean, Philip goes all the way into the British Isles. He goes all the way up into one of the most wonderful countries in the whole world, right? And, and he takes the gospel up there and, and he does that until he's eventually killed for his faith. And, um, and Thomas goes all the way to India, according to most reports, all the way to India with the gospel. These guys are so charged up. These were guys of little faith. You following me? If you're here this morning and you don't have a lot of faith, I believe God wants to grow that faith. God wants to grow that faith. So, if you're here this morning, maybe you can identify with Philip. Maybe you can identify with Thomas. And I don't know how this all might shake down for you. Okay? You might be here this morning, and you might be at this place where you're like, you know, I just can't believe... Just not at a place yet where I can believe that Jesus really was the Son of God who died for my sins. I, I'm just not there yet. Okay? And that's totally, that's just where you are. That's okay. Okay? But here's the reality. Okay? What, what the takeaway from today might be for you is there's a chance, okay, that God might be saying to you, maybe, 
Okay? You know, you actually have enough. You have enough logic. You have enough evidence. You have enough reason. You've, you've heard enough. You've asked enough questions. You've gotten enough answers. You don't have it all figured out, and you never will. But you've got enough are to take a step of faith and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It, it may, you may be waiting around for like more evidence of the next greatest thing or that sermon that's just going to totally bring everything into clarity. Let me tell you, it's not all into clarity for me. Okay? There's never perfect 100% clarity. Okay? It, there's always a measure of faith that's required. And, and basically, what God may be actually saying to you this morning is you got enough, you just got to go out on faith and just accept it. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's just time to, to just, just say, okay, I'm just going to accept it and, and, and just do it. Or, okay, and this is what's so cool about God and how we're all different. You may be here this morning, and you may not be here yet, okay? And basically, you know what God's really wanting you to do? God's wanting you to, to do what Thomas did and say, you know what? I need more, God. God's actually wanting you to, to, to say to God, I need something more. You, God, you know me well enough. You know my mind. You know the way I'm wired. You know I need a little bit more evidence. You've got to give me a sign. You've got to show me something really amazing. You've got to do a God thing in my life, and then I will sign up. And, you know, maybe God wants you to pray that prayer. And, and maybe God knows you so well that that's exactly what he's going to do. I don't know. Or he may turn around and say, Philip, <laughs> you got enough. Okay, you got enough. It's just time to take that step. And this isn't just again, this isn't just about putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. This this kind of thing, this is an everyday application. Okay, if you're trying to have a relationship with God, you're trying to follow Jesus Christ. Okay? Again, you may be struggling to believe that that God is going to is going to take care of some situation. You may be struggling to trust God in an area of your life. Okay? And ultimately, I think you just got to really search your heart and go before God and, uh, and ask him to help you with your faith. I think George Michael got it right when he said, we got to have faith. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, God, just want to say thank you for um, the insight that we get from your word and uh, from what we learn from Philip and from Thomas. And uh, Lord, if you chose those guys, even with all their faults and, and doubts and, and, man, their lack of faith, and their, uh, they just really struggle, God. And you were able to, to, to effectively just empower them and use them in amazing ways, God. Then I believe there's hope for all of us. And uh, Lord, just encourage each of us here this morning. Wherever we are, with, with whatever amount of faith that we have, God, and whatever we're struggling to believe, whatever we're struggling to trust about you, whether it's you as our Savior, or whether it's some area or aspect of our life, God, help us to believe. Help us to go out in faith. Increase our faith. Give us what we need to believe so that we can effectively be about your business, God. Bless each person here. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.